Well, it's been quite a while since we have studied together from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. Currently, and in order to remind you where we are in our present study, we're looking at four great principled realities regarding the doctrines of man and sin from Romans 5.12. I'd like to invite you to turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We've been looking at verse 12, and it would be good for us, since we have not been in this study for some time, to read the text of Romans 5, 12 to 21, and then we'll focus in on verses 12, 13, and 14 this morning. Romans 5, 12, you follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because, God, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then that which we have been focusing upon, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness 
leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we studied verses 1 to 11 some time ago now, we came to verse 12 with the word, therefore. And it pointed us to that which Paul had just taught in verses 1 to 11, and maybe even stretching back a couple of chapters before. And as we came to verse 12 of Romans 5, I told you that there were a number of very critical questions that come to us in our study of this passage, Romans 5, 12 to 21. And if you remember, we posed those host of implication questions about and around four principled realities or statements that all are true from what Paul says here in Romans 5.12. Those four principled realities are these. Number one, according to verse 12a of Romans 5, sin entered the world through Adam. Secondly, death was the result of sin, verse 12b. Thirdly, verse 12c says, death spread to all men. And then fourthly, the latter part of verse 12, verse 12d, all men are therefore sinners. Sin entered the world through Adam. Death was the result of sin. Death spread to all men, and all men are therefore sinners. I ask many questions as we pondered this very, very important, most important text of Romans 5.12 about man and about sin. We are, however, left with another observation which actually leads Paul on to verses 13 and 14 of Romans 5, namely, how is it that death itself can spread to all men without distinction, which then is supposed to prove that all men therefore are sinners? I'll state it again. How is it that death itself can spread to all men without distinction, which then is supposed to prove that all men are therefore sinners. Paul anticipates that, and he answers that in verses 13 and 14 of Romans 5. In other words, it's Paul expanding on what he actually means in the latter part of verse 12. That death itself has spread to all men because all sinned. He wants everyone to know that the death of mankind, which is as a result of the sin of Adam, affects every single human being, whether they've broken a specific command or commandments of God or not. That's his point. 
In verses 13 and 14, he uses an illustration from history to prove his case. He maintains that the universality and the inevitability of death from the first sin of Adam is the absolute truth. It's not going to be what you hear today. It's not going to be what you hear taught that often. It's certainly not what the world believes, but it is absolute truth. The universality and the inevitability of death from the first sin of Adam, it's the absolute truth because even when God hadn't yet given a formal law to be disobeyed, which was, of course, later to be given by Moses upon Mount Sinai, death nevertheless reigned from Adam's first sin up to the time of Moses and, of course, beyond. That's true. It's absolute truth. That should show, Paul believes, that Adam's sin has deathly affected all men. Now let's see if I can break down verses 13 and 14 for you so that we can understand this illustration of Paul or this reference that he gives here to the time frame between Adam and Moses. I want you to think in your minds about this time frame because all that he's going to say in verses 13 and 14 is specifically related to that time frame between Adam and Moses. And he tells us three things about it. Three things. If you're taking notes, you have sermon notes now, don't you? No one has the excuse not to take sermon notes. Three realities, three statements, three truths from verses 13 and 14 that shows us about how death reigned in between Adam and Moses. Here's the first one. It's for us, contained in verse 13a. Very simple. Here it is. Before the Mosaic law was given, sin was a pervasive reality in the world. Before the Mosaic law was given, sin was a pervasive reality in the world. Secondly, in the latter part of verse 13, verse 13b, transgression was not charged to anyone's account before the Mosaic law was given. Transgression was not charged to anyone's account before the Mosaic law was given. And then thirdly and finally for this morning, death was still the universal and inevitable consequence of sinning for those from Adam to Moses. Death was still the universal and inevitable consequence of sinning for those from Adam to Moses. And we find that out in the first part of verse 14. What we're saying then is that these are three logical deductions that Paul wants to make in order to prove his point about death spreading to all men from Adam's first transgression. Now let's unpack these three points this morning because we need to fully understand Paul's monumental teaching here about the nature of sin and death. And that's really the underlying assumption of his teaching here in verses 13 and 14. 
He wants to prove, and if you receive nothing else from the message this morning, you realize from his teaching here in verses 13 and 14 about the universality and inevitability of sin and death. That's the point. The universality and inevitability about sin and death as illustrated or proven from those people's lives between Adam and Moses. Now let's talk about the first one. Before the Mosaic law was given, sin was a pervasive reality in the world. Look at verse 13a. Paul says there, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Who can doubt that? Who can doubt that sin was in the world before the coming of the Mosaic law? Do you remember Moses' own words? Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Need we mention just a few brief verses that show us that sin was a pervasive reality in the world even before the coming of the Mosaic Law, before the commands of God, before the Ten Commandments, before all of the commandments of the Mosaic legislation? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Now remember, this is pre-flood. Pre-flood, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was what? Only evil continually. Now that's just one verse that shows us truly that sin was a pervasive reality in the world even before the Mosaic law was given. Even before the actual giving of the law of God, men's hearts are totally depraved and worthy of death. Indeed, right after Moses makes this statement in Genesis 6-5, what does God do in order to deal with human sin? It causes the flood. And He wipes out every single person without exception except Noah and his immediate family. To show the pervasiveness of sin and more importantly, the consequences because of the pervasiveness of this sin. But notice this, right after the flood account in chapter 8, look at chapter 8. This is post-flood now. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, the latter part of that verse Genesis 8:21b For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see that? And to illustrate this, Moses records of course throughout not only the entire Pentateuch, but certainly in the book of Genesis, all kinds of examples of the pervasiveness of sin. The first one of course is that he records this statement that Ham One of the sons of Noah saw his father's nakedness within his own father's tent, which of course was the sin of what we now call voyeurism. That's what the sin was there. Staring, looking intently at his father's nakedness. It was a heinous sin. And then you read in Genesis about the Tower of Babel, or Babel, and you continue to move on in this book of beginnings And you see, for instance, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah 
in Genesis 19, which was the judgment upon the sin of homosexuality for which God destroyed both those entire cities. And I could go on and on, but you get the point. The point is that sin is pervasive even before, specifically before the giving of the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai, God was giving the divine sentence of death because of mankind's sinfulness. You say, what was that consequence? What was that divine sentence? Death. Death. Ultimate death. They were all judged because of their own personal sinfulness. You read all of those accounts and it was Ham's personal sinfulness. You read the account of the pre-flood heart of man and it was man's own personal sinfulness. You read post-flood accounts, including the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and what do you find? You find man's pervasive sinfulness, his own personal sinfulness, and that because of their having sinned in Adam, their representative head. He sinned, we all sinned. Death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 5.12, Paul is giving us in one statement, one phrase, the reality of what the Bible tells us repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. This pervasiveness of sin. And that sin brought death. And that death was a reality for every single person prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law. What's Paul's point? point is that sin brings destruction, that death is the result, even prior to the giving of the law of God, even prior to God saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, do do this, do do this, do do this. Even prior to those things, sin was there and sin deserved punishment, it deserved death. That's the point he's trying to make here in the first part of verse 13. And there's a second point he's trying to make. Transgression was not charged to someone's account before the Mosaic law was given. Look at the next phrase in verse 13. But sin is not counted when there is no law. Now, if you're like me, you're deducing from this statement something like this. Now, Paul, wait a minute. You just said... Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. What are you saying now? I thought you just said that mankind was pervasively sinful even before the giving of the Mosaic law. And because of this pervasive sinfulness, judgment came. Now you seem to be saying that sin was not being charged to people before the law came. What are you trying to say by this? It seems... A little bit contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, sin is not put to our account, put to their account when there was no law. What is he saying here? Here's the point. Here's what he's driving toward. Even though the law of God, as given through Moses to the Jewish people, had not yet been formally given, for which mankind would then have an actual standard by which to be charged as guilty of their actual transgressions when they don't live up to it, Sin is still in them. In this chronological sweeping look from between Adam and Moses, 
When the giving of the law had not formally come, there was not by God a holding of the people to direct violations of the breaking of the law of God, His expressed will, because there was no law. It hadn't yet been given. It hadn't yet been revealed. And when these people between Adam and Moses sinned, when they sinned against God, He wasn't holding them to a transgressing act against the law. You see? That's the point. It wasn't that they aren't sinners. They were. It was, however, that they weren't specifically transgressing against known laws that God had given him. That's the point. That kind of sinning, the transgressing kind of sinning, would come after people are specifically told in great detail how to live and what the consequences would be for people who fail to live that way. You know what the issue is here? They're sinners. All of those between Adam and Moses, they're still sinners. But they're held to a standard pre-law. And those who are after the Mosaic legislation, after He came down from Mount Sinai, after the Ten Commandments were given, after the law of God was established, then those people were held by the standard of that law. And they too fell from that law and they too we're sinners, for sure. It's exactly why he says that the punishment of sin or for sin was not formally put on their accounts before the giving of the law. This is that accounting term. It wasn't charged to them. But it doesn't mean that they weren't sinners. Of course they were. We just read in Genesis 6-5 and 8-21 how sinful they were. Every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. It just wasn't that way because of the idea of the specific violation of laws. They weren't held to a standard about which they had no knowledge. Were they guiltless, therefore? No, not at all. Now, that's not the point. The point Paul's trying to make here and what he's saying is this. Sin is so sinful. Mankind is so wicked. Adam's first sin was such a pervasive and universal an inevitable shaper of the human heart that even before the formal imparting of the written law of God, sin was passed down to all men. Even before God came along and said, don't do this. Behave this way. Respond this way. Love this way. Mankind was sinful. So sinful. In other words, men between Adam and Moses didn't need God's law to show them their sin their sin was shown to them so readily, even without the law. That's the sinfulness, beloved, of the human heart. That's the wickedness of the soul. We don't need God's law to show us how sinful we are. They were sinners both constitutionally and volitionally. It was the makeup of the very constitution of their lives. And they also committed personal acts of sin. They were sinners in Adam and they were sinners by choice. Constitutionally and by choice. You see, Paul is either anticipating someone's argument or he might be actually answering someone's argument here that surely God isn't going to see anyone as a constituted sinner before receiving the various do's and don'ts of the law. Might even be some of these Jews here. Might even be their objection. Now wait a minute, Paul, wait. Are you telling me that before the Mosaic legislation was given, 
before people were actually told, here are the do's and here are the don'ts, that they're constituted sinners and they're sinners by choice as well? Here's his response. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. People are born into this world constituted sinners and they are sinners by choice. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Romans 5.12 says. And when he illustrates this point, he says, just look at the time between Adam and Moses. Even before the law of God was given. They were sinners. Look at their lives. They were sinners in Adam. And because they were constituted, and by the very nature of their lives, they were sinners, they committed personal acts of sin. And God holds them eternally responsible, even before the law ever came. It's amazing. I mean, someone's going to say, but surely people need to have a a written code of laws, a set of commandments which will show them what to do and what not to do, right? I mean, it's not fair. It's not right that God holds somebody to a standard of righteousness before He ever tells them how to do it. Oh no, Paul says, I can show you plainly that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, all men have therefore sinned in Adam, and everyone can clearly see this utter sinfulness by seeing the fact that those who lived between Adam and Moses also sinned and died even before the law of God formally came into the world. Well, what a powerful argument. And you know, he's absolutely right. And nobody can refute it. Anybody living from that time right now? Anybody alive? Anybody around? From the time between Adam and Moses? Anybody not tainted with with sin and therefore death? Of course not. Everybody died. And they died because they were sinners. And they sinned even apart from the formulation of the law of God on Mount Sinai. That's his point. That's how sinful sin is. It's a powerful argument about the universality and the inevitability of death by sin. I mean, think about it for a moment. Romans 5.12, he says, Death spread to all men because all sinned. And somebody's going to stand up and say, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. You can't tell me that every single person in the entire world is a sinner. It's not universal. And it's certainly not inevitable. Oh, yes, it is. How so? Because every single person, illustratively seen through the time period between Adam and Moses, all sinned and all died. Even before the giving of the law. It was in them. It was a part of them. You don't have to wait for the law of God to be manifested so as to see human sinfulness. In fact, the only thing that the law does when it comes is that it simply further intensifies the sinfulness of sin. That's what it does. It it, it further brings to the surface the sinfulness of the human heart. It shows even more heinously the depravity of man. We already know that it does for mankind. But the law comes in and shows us even more clearly this sinfulness of our hearts. 
And one thing that the law at least didn't do is show us our sinfulness to mankind initially. Didn't need to. It was shown by Adam's sin and what it plunged the world into, and that was sinfulness. The law didn't need to come right then and there. In fact, it didn't even come for many, many years between Adam and Moses. Didn't need to. Men were already sinners. Men were already convinced of their sinfulness. And the thing that convinced them most of all was lying on your deathbed, dying, right? That's what, that's what the Bible teaches. No, sin was shown to mankind in the person of Adam as our representative head of the race. And every individual who, having been born into this world, having Adam and Eve as our first parents, especially those who were born between Adam and Moses, are therefore sinners both by constitution and by choice. That's his teaching. And what's the result? What, what are the consequences of this constitutional and volitional sinfulness of man. Paul says it is death. Look at the first part of verse 14. Death was still the universal and inevitable consequence of sinning from Adam to Moses. Verse 14a. Yet, or nevertheless, he's just proven the point that even before the law of Moses came, And even though people weren't charged with specific transgressions, that's why I used transgression in that outline point, not sinning, but transgressing kind of sinning, even before that, even before the transgressing kind of sinning that the law of Moses would bring to a person, you violate a law, you break the law, you see it, you transgress, consciously, willingly, nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. It reigned. That word speaks of dominion. It reigned from Adam to Moses like a king. Death reigned like a king even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Oh, beloved, do not miss those three words, yet death reigned. That's his point. He's proving what he said in Romans 5.12. Death spread to all men because all sin. How? Just look. Just look around you. You can see death and destruction. And you can even see it before the law was formally given. Everybody died because everybody was a sinner. Here is the evidence that Adam's sin was our sin. It was your sin and it was my sin. Nevertheless, he says, death was the universal and inevitable consequence of those who are sinners. All those between Adam and Moses all died. If they weren't sinners in Adam and sinners in, by choice, they wouldn't have died. But they did. And they died, every single solitary person who ever lived, except, of course, Enoch, because for his own mysterious purposes, God took him before his actual death, but he was still a sinner. That's the point. He was still a sinner. Paul's point in Romans 5, 13 and 14 was to show 
that sin is universal and inevitable in its consequences, and it proves the very truth of verse 12. Even before that giving of the formal law, death reigned because of Adam's sin. It caused everyone to be sinful, sinning as it were in Adam, and as Genesis 8.21b says, to be evil from our youth. It's a part of us. We need to face the facts. You talk to people maybe who say, as I have, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe I've sinned. Usually they'll say, however, I believe though other people have sinned, sinned against me. Rare might it be that we would have a person who would say such things, but there are those out there. It's not true according to Romans 5, 12, 13, and 14. Now, we have one last loose end to try to tie up. Paul does say here in verse 14a, doesn't he, that death did reign over those, here's that phrase, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that sin reigned even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam? Many people have debated what that phrase might mean. And whatever it means, it's referring to a group of people whose way of sinning was not exactly like the way Adam first sinned when he transgressed. That's, That's what it says. What does it mean by what it says? Who are these people? Are they a certain class of people whose sinning is so different that it wasn't like Adam's first sin at all? Or is it simply the people that Paul has already been referencing here, those who've sinned in between Adam and Moses? Which is it? Well, I believe it's referring to the latter. That is, Paul is simply saying that death reigned even over those who didn't commit their sins like Adam did by transgressing against God's known, expressed, revealed will. You say, how did Adam commit his first sin? He committed it willingly, knowingly, consciously. God spoke to him. And we don't know if it was the kind of direct revelation through a voice, like I'm talking to you now, but somehow in the conscience In the ear gate, somehow, in the brain of Adam and Eve, they were told specifically by God, right? Expressed, explicit statement, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. You shall not eat of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, lest you do that upon the pains of death. They knew it. They knew exactly what he'd said not to do. He'd specifically and clearly voiced to them in some way that they could not do it. And what did Adam do? Disobeyed. First Timothy even says he was not deceived. Eve was deceived. He wasn't deceived. What does that mean? That means that he consciously, willingly disobeyed the direct will of God. That's, that's his sin. That's what plunged the whole human race into sin. And even today, when we commit a sin, we have the Word of God. We have the expressed will of God. And when we sin, we transgress the known will of God. We consciously violate that known will. 
But flowing right out of Paul's clear context here in verses 13 and 14, there was a group of people who didn't, I say didn't, yet have that specific and clear set of commandments, the Ten Commandments or even the totality of the Mosaic Law. And who was that? The people between Adam and Moses. They didn't have that law. They didn't have that clear-cut, specific, direct, expressed will. It had not been given. It was given on Mount Sinai. There were a whole host of people living between Adam and Moses. They didn't have that kind of law so as to transgress it like Adam did. In other words, there was a parenthesis. There was a period of time in between. Adam had that expressed will from God, don't do this. And then there was a parenthetical group of people who didn't have that clearly expressed to them. And then you have the giving of the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. They then and forever from then... You have people who knew exactly what to do and don't do it. That's how they express their sinfulness. The people in between, they express their sinfulness not by transgression, because there wasn't any known law, but they nevertheless trans, uh, they nevertheless sinned. And when they sinned, they gave themselves an adjudicating sentence of death, even if it wasn't transgression. That's what I believe that means. Nothing more, nothing less. As far as those who see this phrase, as so many do, you'll be reading in a commentary, for example, and you come to this particular phrase, and somebody will comment on this and say that this particular phrase is referring, for instance, to the mentally handicapped. Or they'll say this might also be referring to those who've never heard the gospel. They're in faraway lands of the heathen, those who haven't been touched by the gospel of Christ haven't been preached to. This is, this is a reference to them. That's what this phrase means, they say. The death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I don't believe that's what that says. I don't believe that there are sufficient grounds to see it that way. These kinds of people do have something in common. They do. They don't sin like Adam did, with a willful disobeying of God's revealed will. And so therefore, they shouldn't be held accountable for Adam's sin. That's what some people say. That's what some people believe. The people who take this view say that this phrase must be Paul's way of covering the mentally incompetent, unbelievers who never consciously reject Christ. And you remember, if you were listening carefully during my barrage of multitudinous questions in the first four messages... I actually posed this particular question, but I never gave you an answer. That's because the answer, I believe, is covered by some who say this in verses 13 and 14. They say that there it is. That little phrase means that those mentally incapable, at least those, if not also those who are in those faraway lands who have never consciously had the opportunity to reject Christ, That's this group. That's what that phrase means. I don't believe that. I want to give you what I believe is that answer. And I'll do so by saying this. Whether God has a salvation plan which includes these kinds of situations, the mentally incompetent, those who've never heard of Christ so as to reject Him, whether God has a salvation plan or not for these, Scripture does not say. doesn't tell us. This phrase in Romans 5.14 doesn't deal with that dilemma. It's just not there in my judgment. 
This text in Romans 5 is answering a completely different issue, as I've pointed out to you. Any appeal to these kinds of scenarios is foreign, I believe, to this passage. You say, how so? Well, first of all, this was Paul is dealing with those who, according to verse 14, are those, notice what it says in verse 14, who are sinning. They're sinning, which is proving his point from verse 12 that they were sinning when Adam sinned. Paul is therefore showing how these people between Adam and Moses could sin even though God's lawful requirements were not yet revealed to them. In fact, they were actually never revealed to them, right? Because they died before the coming of the law of Moses. They died without the Mosaic law. They, they died nonetheless. That's his point. Aha, but you say. How about Romans 4.15? Look at that, Romans 4.15. That says... Where there is no law, there is no transgression. This must mean, according to some, that unless there's a clear and specific law which could be shown to condemn people's violation of it, God is unfair to condemn. And He's certainly and patently unfair to condemn the mentally handicapped and those who've never had the opportunity to consciously reject Jesus Christ before their death. Is he? Is he unfair to do that? Is he patently unfair to condemn all people, including the mentally handicapped, including those who've never consciously had the opportunity to reject Jesus Christ? Paul's entire point here in Romans 5 is to assert the point, however, that all mankind are condemned. That's his whole point. He doesn't make any qualifiers here. He just says it as a matter of fact. God has the sovereign right, beloved, to condemn all men, everyone who sin in His holy presence. He has the right to say no to anyone. He has the right to bar anyone from heaven who sin against Him, whether their sin is in Adam or their sin is their own personal conscious choice. You say, well, what about this other category, this idea of these people in these foreign lands who haven't had the opportunity to consciously reject Jesus Christ? Uh, Some people throw that into this argument and they group all these people together and they say, surely this particular phrase, even over those who haven't sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam or sinning like Adam did, maybe it includes those people. Do you know what that does? It actually thwarts our evangelistic zeal for these people. Do you see? If you say to yourself, no, wait a minute. If they haven't had the conscious opportunity to reject Jesus Christ because the gospel has never penetrated their tribe, their group, their peoples, then don't send the gospel to them. Don't send the gospel there because what might they do? They might, in fact, consciously reject Jesus Christ. You don't want to do that. You see what that does? It cripples our evangelistic fervor. It takes away our our missionary zeal. It obviates the Great Commission when it says, take the gospel to every creature. To say nothing of the fact that Acts 4.12 says very, very clearly, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Christ. 
It's not somebody in heaven who's not consciously rejected Christ. That's some kind of middle position. That's, that's some kind of neutral thing. It's not a positive affirmation of the person of Christ. That's not consciously receiving Him and bowing your knee to His Lordship. Now, that's somehow allowing someone to get in by the back door. Say, well, they're in because they didn't consciously reject Christ. You say, well, did, did they consciously affirm Christ? No, because Christ was never presented to them. Well, they, but they got to be in because if they didn't have the opportunity to consciously reject Him. Well, I know Acts 4.12 says that, but, but that's not fair. Oh, it's not? Are they sinners? Are they constituted sinners in Adam? Do they, in fact, as adults in their life, consciously sin against God? Yes. And there will be a punishment. That's why we need to go to the world. That's the whole point. Don't cut off our evangelistic opportunity, our missionary zeal, our flame to bring the gospel to every creature. Don't do that. Don't come up with some halfway theology. It would cut out our motivation to go to these people, to serve them, to love them, and present Christ to them. And please do not tell any of our missionaries something like that. What are they doing giving their lives for this purpose? We don't want to do that to them. They're sold out for this. Every creature to hear the gospel. This is, this is not what this phrase has to do with. Romans 2.12 states emphatically, For all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That includes these people. Unless you and I are used by God to reach them with the gospel of Christ. Can you imagine someone hearing my voice? This preaching on a tape or a CD and me saying to them, look, don't go out there because if you go out there, they may actually be confronted with the gospel of Christ and potentially reject it. It's not what we're all about. We're saying to people, go and reach them with the gospel. And if they reject it, that's God's business. If they receive it, that's God's praise. That's His glory. Some of you here today, you are being called by God in some way, shape, or form to bring that very gospel to every creature. What's your response? You say, well, if Paul's right, and if death is the result of sin, the sin of all mankind, and if we're sinners in Adam constitutionally, and if we're sinners in Adam volitionally, then I've got to go. Yes, you do. This is my going. What's your going? This is my help, my financial giving. What's your help? Short-term missions, long-term missions. What are you doing for the sake of the gospel? Were you planning not to be at the missions conference too many nights? Too many hours, too much labor, too much time away from what I want to do? If you've been saying no to Jesus Christ and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go and give your life for the sake of the gospel, sin brings death. Death is spread to all men, including ourselves, and we need the gospel. And men need the gospel. Let's bring it to them. 
Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, there might very well be people who are seated right here who don't need us to take the gospel to a faraway land. They need us to bring the gospel to them. They've come with us. They've come with someone else. They've desperately needed to hear a message that they're dying because of their sin without Christ. Are you desperately reaching out to those around you? Let alone those in faraway lands with the gospel of Christ. Maybe you're one who sits here today and for the very first time you've suddenly realized that your sin, your sin in Adam and your own personal choice to sin has brought about a death-deserving relationship to God. You're condemned to die. Don't sit here today and withstand the possibility of not dying. You will die. And if you died today, you'd die without Christ if you don't know Him. Tomorrow's not been promised to you. You only have right now. You must repent of your sin and follow Jesus Christ. He commands you to believe in Him. Believe that He died for sinners like you. Believe that His death was that which will save you from death. Believe that His being raised from the dead will ultimately raise you from the dead. Believe in Him right now and He will give you the forgiveness of sin. Cry out to Him, God, save me. Save me from this certain death because of my sin. Oh, and believer... What is your role? Are you going to give your all for the gospel to wherever God leads and whatever He does in your life to take this ministry, whether it's across the street or around the world? Oh Lord, I pray that you will bring this glorious good news to every heart in our sphere of influence, wherever that may be, for your honor and your glory, for Jesus' sake, amen.